Georgia Republicans fear a replay of 2020. We are now seeing what happens when prosecutors move forward with highly charged indictments and trials in the middle of an election. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Greg Bluestein. On today's episode, we'll dive deeper into the Trump-fueled feud over District Attorney Fannie Willis's investigation. I'm Patricia Murphy. The rhetoric heats up after a Georgia state senator doubles down on misinformation. Do you want a civil war? I don't want a civil war. I don't want to have to draw my rifle. I'm AJC Washington correspondent Tia Mitchell. You'll also hear why a watchdog group in Washington says one Georgia congressman's gun legislation may violate ethics rules. I'm Bill Nygut. That woman, what could have taken those ballots out? Look at them scurrying around with the ballots. Nobody in the room, hiding around. They look like they're passing out dope. A judge says that Rudolph Giuliani will have to pay for his defamatory attacks against two Fulton County election workers. We invite you to follow Politically George on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review. And remember, we'll be expanding to five days a week on a daily show on WABE in just a few months. Guys, this is one of those weeks where we're just drowning in a sea of news. There's so much going on in Georgia, so much to unpack. That's why I'm so grateful for you guys in the show that we can do careful analysis of all that has gone on in the last few hours and last few days. Greg, I think one of the problems is it's not just information. It's like a fire hose of information, but it's also misinformation. It's something we've really struggled with this week. We've been getting information from all corners and some of it is just not true. And it's uh, something we have to deal with. Um, We really had to do a lot of this in 2020, checking, fact checking, double checking, triple checking. And it really feels like we are back in that space today. And I also think this week has shown the growth, the maturity and the leadership from Governor Kemp. So I can't wait to dig into that. But, you know, I think when it comes to fact checking, the Rudolph Giuliani story is going to be very interesting to talk about because he got a big fact check from a judge who issued a summary judgment against him in his defamatory uh, statements about Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. In the form of a 57-page scathing yeah. ruling that we'll talk all about in a few minutes. Uh, before we hit break, we invite you to follow Politically George on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review. And remember, we'll be expanding to five days a week on a daily show on WABE in just a few months. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. 
And we had a doozy of a press conference from Governor Brian Kemp, who noted the same thing that we noted in the morning jolt this week, which is that a haunting pattern is emerging in Georgia with Donald Trump-fueled lies. Because back in 2020, we remember that Trump and his allies pressed Georgia lawmakers to overturn the state's election and then vilified Governor Brian Kemp and legislative leaders when they refused to break the law to invalidate the will of Georgia voters. Well, now Donald Trump and his allies are pressing Georgia lawmakers once again to do something that is legally questionable and politically impossible. Uh, They want Georgia leaders to impeach Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis after she brought indictments against Trump and 18 of his allies. Let's listen to what Governor Brian Kemp had to say at a press conference earlier Thursday. There have been calls by one individual in the General Assembly and echoed outside of of these walls by the former president for a special session that would ignore current Georgia law and directly interfere with the proceedings of a separate but equal branch of government. Patricia, I'm having all these flashbacks to that fraught time that we both covered here in 2020 in Georgia when we saw all these pro-Trump fantasies about election fraud first start out in the far-right media and then take root with activists, with rank-and-file Republican lawmakers, and it turned the state capitol into a noxious toxic atmosphere with threats leveled against the governor, the lieutenant governor, legislative leaders, rank and file politicians. I'm just seeing a replay of that. Yeah, it is just deja vu all over again. It is the literally the strangest feeling to watch all of this unplay, particularly knowing now what we didn't know then. However, what feels really different about this moment is how fast Kemp and House Speaker John Burns and sitting state senators, even freshmen who, you know, go back to 2020, lower level members were very loath to speak out and say anything. This has happened immediately. We have, you know, within a day of Colton Moore starting to spread a lot of misinformation, we have the House Speaker come out very quickly and we could talk about his response. The very next day, Brian Kemp comes out, has a press conference meant to talk about her Really, he's talking about a different kind of storm that's happening in the Capitol and just says unequivocally, a special session is not happening. This is a grift. He really referred to this entire scheme as a grift. In 2020, we saw a lot of kind of roundabout response saying, let the process play out. We don't know exactly what happened. I have some questions. Um, But this has been, I think, particularly because it was informed by how everything happened and how how toxic it was, to your point, how serious the death threats became. Um, The response at the top levels of Georgia Republican leadership has been very different. And we'll have to see if it has a different result on those grassroots this time around. Yeah, I think, you know, what Kemp and perhaps some of these other state leaders, what it seems like they're doing is taking notes of what happened in 2020, where these things kind of started with what was considered fringe and eventually became mainstream. And they've now taken over the party. You know, we just had our AJC poll that shows how a majority of Republicans still have questions about the 2020 election. And I think what Governor Kemp is wisely doing is saying, no, we're going to nip it in the bud. We're not going to let this catch fire, or at least we're going to try our best not to let it catch fire, to like come out very strongly, very directly. I think that's also a difference. A lot of times when we see Republicans challenge 
former pe- President Trump or his allies, they do it kind of in ways where they don't take him on directly. And I think Governor Kemp has decided that's not the way to approach it. Um, and I think it'll be interesting to see if this proves a successful way to kind of like quash some of these efforts that are considered extreme while not losing the support of conservatives. We know Brian Kemp so far has been able to do it. It'll be interesting on this, which is a direct challenge of Trump, more direct than he's getting more and more direct in challenging Trump. And speaking of efforts not to kind of fuel the flames, this is Donald Trump fanning those flames in a social media post this week. Highly respected Georgia State Senator Colton Moore deserves thanks and congratulations of everyone for having the courage and conviction to fight the radical left lunatics who are so badly hurting the great state of Georgia and, frankly, the USA itself. Failed DA Fannie Willis, who has allowed Atlanta and Fulton County to become a record-setting murder and violent crime war zone with almost no retribution for those murderers, shockingly indicted your favorite president, me, for a perfect phone call. She is very bad for America. She is very bad for Georgia. And the bottom line is we're going to win. We're going to turn our country around. I want to thank the great people of Georgia for putting up with this crap. Former president of the United States, Donald J. Trump, Greg Bluestein. You know, um, I, I want to join in on this notion that things are different than 2020. Back in 2020, I don't. I think we all kind of had this sinking feeling in the pits of our stomachs that there were no adults in the room. That even um, some of the elected, you know, leadership uh, in the Republican uh, legislature uh, in in Congress were refusing to. Uh, negate Donald Trump's accusations about a, a stolen election and the like. And 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 it was it was an awful feeling that we had no anchor that we could hold on to as all these lies and misinformation were spread. And Brian Kemp today, Governor Kemp, was, I think Patricia, you said it really well before we started the show. He showed a maturity um, that really helps us say, be able to say, look, not everyone is going to go along with these conspiracy theories that are coming back up again. And I, I, it, it was a wonderful experience. I, Tia and I, though, had the same question, really. And we were both thinking about, about you two, uh, Patricia and Greg. Um, who is this? Uh, uh, Brian Kemp right now. You know, uh, the the standard line about Rudolph Giuliani is what happened to America's mayor? How did he fall so low? Of course, with Kemp, I think it's fair enough to ask the question, how has he come into his own in such a strong, independent uh, way? Right. And I just want to add on to it, since that is me and Bill's question for Patricia and Greg, who know Kemp a little bit better. But like for me, I... I don't know Governor Kemp very well. I I haven't covered him directly. Um, but just watching him from afar, I remember, you know, in 2018, you know, he kind of branded himself as this politically incorrect conservative and he was going to drive the illegals back to where they came from. That's something he said in a campaign ad. Um, he's toting guns, of course. 
he was uh, branding himself as the, you know, the, the conservative guy, which I understand that doesn't necessarily mean being in lockstep with Trump. But I remember even after 2020 or during 2020, he was still trying to curry favor with Trump or not get on Trump's bad side. Um, I remember he went to the White House even after Trump had like criticized him directly. He like went to the White House and went to a Christmas party and was trying to stay on former president's good side. So I'm just surprised. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it does seem like he's showing a level of maturity and statesmanship and and independence, quite frankly, that surprises me looking at his trajectory and where he started. What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, like I was there at the Cobb County Republican Party in 2017. I think it was April 1st, April Fool's Day, when Brian Kemp first announced he was running for governor. And what did he do? He announced he was running on a Georgia first platform. From the day one, his rhetoric had been echoing the former president. He was running as a, a as a Trump branded Republican, whether or not he had Donald Trump's endorsement, which of course he he wound up famously getting a few days before the runoff against Casey Cagle, which fueled him to a runaway victory over the one-time party favorite. And we've seen him change from this sort of Trump first Republican candidate to a more mainstream Republican. Has not changed his policies. You know, I've said this a million times. He'd say it to anyone who knows the governor would say this. Uh, he is no moderate, right? He might be he might be winning over moderate voters with these stances on Trump, but he is one of the most conservative governors in Georgia history, especially in recent years with his stances on immigration and guns and abortion and you name it. Um, but at the same time, he's managed to appeal to a block of voters, especially moderate swing independent voters who are fed up with with Donald Trump by standing up to him. In 2022, he did not talk much about Donald Trump at all. You would not hear him say a bad word about Donald Trump. That changed the moment he won re-election where at his victory party, he had a slight dig at Donald Trump and it's gotten to be more intense as we've gone on to the point where on a show we just had it last week, we, we focused on how Brian Kemp was calling Donald Trump a loser <laughs> for not participating in the Republican bank. So it's gotten more intense, but Patricia, you know, this is a new level because we're now seeing uh, we're now seeing Trump loyalists go after state senators. I've talked to five Republican state senators myself who've some of them publicly, some of them privately, who have been threatened by Colton Moore's by and we'll talk a little bit more about Colton Moore, but by by folks who have seen what he's put on Twitter and who have been one state senator actually was texting me this morning saying that they were at the post office changing some of their personal details so they couldn't be found by Trump loyalists. And that person, that state senator, who I don't want to identify, said basically they expected a level of vitriol, but not from within their own party. Yeah. And all of those state senators are talking to Brian Kemp and his staff. He knows about these personal threats against people or who who are his colleagues. These are people who he doesn't just support. He likes them. It's a very tight community, with the exception of Colton Moore, obviously. Um, But the reality is that Brian Kemp is stronger than Donald Trump in Georgia, a lot stronger. One of these two men won an election recently and it wasn't Donald Trump in Georgia. Brian Kemp won by a huge margin 
over Donald Trump's candidate, um, he doesn't need Donald Trump anymore. And at this point, without a Republican president, there's only one leader in this state for Republicans, and it's Brian Kemp. Um, So he now has kind of the political authority. He also has the moral authority to stand up and say what's true, which is that Republicans don't have the votes to call a special session, which is what Colton Moore is asking for. Um, They also cannot defund the uh, single DA without defunding all of the DAs. So unlike in 2020, when he had an election in front of him and he had a president saying something totally different than he was saying, Brian Kemp is the leader now. And I think he's just displaying that leadership because he can and frankly, because he should because these people are in danger the more threats get ratcheted against them. Yeah, and uh, Governor Kemp made that point during the news conference today. He said he knows full well what it means to be threatened. He and his family have experienced threats over a period of of time as the intense political atmosphere has become so, so divisively partisan. But I'd like to point out what I think is interesting about the way Governor Kemp talked about Fonnie Willis's case and the way that Burt Jones did. Um, Governor Kemp thinks it's politicized. He, he, was not, he has not said that he doesn't think there's some political motivation behind Fannie Willis going after uh, the, pres- the former president. But he did say today that, and I don't have the quote in front of me, Greg, you may remember it more specifically. He did say today he's seen nothing so far that she has done that would lead this new commission that's going to look into whether DAs are acting with integrity or not, that would lead her to be called before that commission. So he did say something to that effect, Greg, and then mention that, but I want to talk about what Bert Jones said. Yeah, well, let's get to the governor's exact comments right now. Up to this point, I have not seen any evidence that DA Willis's actions or lack thereof warrant action by the prosecuting attorney oversight commission. But that will ultimately be a decision that the commission will make. Regardless, in my mind, a special session of the General Assembly to end run around this law is not feasible and may ultimately prove to be unconstitutional. Bill, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, up until this point, we've heard from a number of Republicans in, in the Georgia legislature, Republican leaders like majority leader Steve Gooch, like others saying, hey, you know, we're, we're, we're condemning this idea of a special session, but we are open to filing complaints using this new commission that could sanction or even oust wayward prosecutors. And we don't know how this commission works because it literally just got passed into law a few months ago and hasn't even taken effect in fully yet. But Governor Kemp is drawing a line. He's saying, hey, you know, I guess people can use it, but there's no reason whatsoever uh, that he sees for this commission to go after Fonnie Willis at this point. Let me just, before you jump into your point out, as I started to, too, uh, the lieutenant governor had a somewhat different take on all this. He does not like, he he says we shouldn't have a special session either. He said the idea in a statement to the AJC was, quote, not practical. And he also objected to uh, people like Colton Moore calling out individuals by name and attacking them because they weren't supporting him. But he goes on to say what we should be talking about, and this is a quote, is the gross misuse of power, resources, and responsibility from the Fulton County DA, diametrically opposed to what Governor Kemp said just uh, this afternoon in his news conference. 
my question, I, I guess I'm confused because what is it for then if it's not to like go after prosecutors when the Republican leaders or, you know, if at some point Democrats get yeah. in control, if isn't the whole point of the law to go after prosecutors when you don't like how they're prosecuting crimes? You think they're either over prosecuting certain crimes or under prosecuting certain crimes. So in yeah. that way, like. I um, think it is for those who do want to go after Fannie Willis. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but that kind of is what this commission was created to do. To me, not so much. I mean, look, the the commission, the entire time doing the debate of this commission, it was meant to go after wayward prosecutors who were not doing their duties, um, who either weren't charging people with crimes who were derelict of duties, who had been convicted or accused of crimes themselves. And there was many, unfortunately, there's many examples in recent Georgia history of, of prosecutors who have gotten all sorts of trouble themselves. Um, what, the example that, that lawmakers often made was that of Deborah Gonzalez, Deborah Gonzalez, who is the Athens DA, a very liberal, very progressive, who is not, who was not bringing a lot of cases, a drug to cases to court. This is a different scenario. And I've talked to talked to veteran prosecutors who who may or may not be serving on these panels privately who said, look, she, in this case, Fannie Willis delivered a true bill of indictment. It's it's a lot harder for them. I mean, even if we see some of these complaints filed against Fannie Willis, I wouldn't be shocked to see them summarily dismissed because this isn't about not doing your duty. This is more, she did her duty. She got a grand jury to indict Donald Trump and 18 other defendants. So it's a lot harder for a, a commission to kind of go after her for that. Rather than you're seeing, you know, the Deborah Gonzalez's of the, the other examples who are not doing their duty, who are being investigated for that. So that, that would be the difference there. But Bill, I want to go back to something you said earlier about Burt Jones. And to me, this looks, I mean, this is the dynamic that could be shaping 2024 in Georgia because Burt Jones is fast personifying the pro-Trump wing of the Georgia Republican Party while Brian Kemp is embodying the mainstream wing and the way these two politicians figure out and and work out their differences, but also press their own agendas and how they respond to things like this. Because look, the day after Brian Kemp calls Donald Trump a loser, what does Burt Jones do on Twitter after he gets arrested? Says that this is a, you know, this is a, uh, an episode of a, of a DA who has gone way beyond her duty and, 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 you know, just a scathing tweet uh, that that reminded me of all the sort of tension ahead as Burt Jones angles for a likely 2026 run for governor. Well, I, I think we're certainly going to see the dynamic uh, between the two men play out in the 2024 legislative session. We already did see it to some extent this past session. Burt Jones pushed through some legislation that Governor Kemp and his people were not particularly enthusiastic about, and they had a big fight. Uh, about the uh, hospital certificate of need issue that Burt Jones was pushing so hard. Um, and and I, I think in some ways that fight, and, and you two were covering the legislature, I wasn't as much. So Patricia, that fight wasn't the center of attention for the most part, but I think it's going to increasingly become that when they come back into session in 2024, don't you? I completely agree. I mean, I think that there's no 
no question that as these lawmakers come into session, that's going to be a key dynamic going forward. Um, I think it's also really important to remember that for all of these Republicans who are considering statewide office in the future, they have an audience of one. Um, that's Donald Trump. And Donald Trump has just been indicted in Georgia. So there are so many different dynamics and tentacles wrapping themselves around politics in this state right now. It's um, it's very, very difficult to even understand where all of the motivations are coming from. What's the benefit to people for pushing this information? What's the benefit for pushing to oust a DA when you know you can't do it? Um, that A lot of times... There's just one road back to Mar-a-Lago, and and that explains a lot of this act, this activity. Before we hit a break, I do want to talk about the man behind this push. It's Colton Moore, who is a backbench first-term state senator, who you know we've probably barely talked about on the show, if ever. We we haven't covered him much beyond a few a few uh, things he did way back in 2018 when he bought Brian Kemp's domain name, BrianKemp.com, and ended up selling it back to the governor's campaign. It was interesting watching how Republican leaders in the state Senate handled him because they knew he could be a maverick. They knew he could be a wild card. And they tried to kind of bring him into the caucus. They gave him this bronze elephant award that our colleague Maya Prabhu uh, documented uh, from her seat in front row at the state Senate. But now Colton has become a darling of Trump hardliners for using this increasingly hostile language to pummel his Republican colleagues pummel. I mean, he's he's calling them buzzard cowards, Patricia. He's calling them rhinos for not joining this petition. And this language has gotten so bellicose, so so uh, so violent that he's now talking openly about a civil war. My goodness, how many people in my district questioned that election? I mean, and now that we've got 19 people who are facing the rest of their life in prison because they spoke out against an election. I mean, you know, I, I told one senator, I said, listen, I said, we've got to put our heads together and figure this out. We need to be taking action right now, because if we don't, our constituencies are going to be fighting it in the streets. Do you want a civil war? I don't want a civil war. I don't want to have to draw my rifle. I want to make this problem go away with my legislative means of doing so. And the first step to getting that done is defunding Fonnie Willis of any Georgia tax dollars. And hopefully Representative Jordan and Representative Biggs will follow suit in Congress and strip her of her federal dollars, too, because she is not upholding her oath to the Constitution. Okay, there's so much to unpack there. First of all, saying I don't want to have to draw my rifle means, but I kind of would. I would if I had to. I mean, that's the implied meaning of that, isn't it? So that that kind of rhetoric is exactly what um, Moore's own GOP leaders are telling him to please stop. It is so unnecessary. Also, what he's calling for is just not legally possible. At the state level, you can't defund one DA without defunding them all. At the federal level, if you take away Fannie Willis's federal funding, you are defunding the prosecutions of rapes, murders, human trafficking. Um, None of this makes any sense. What has gotten his colleagues most incensed is that this also is being sent out with a petition and a fundraising appeal. He's saying, I need your help, constituents and Georgians and Americans, to keep the pressure on my colleagues. And he's telling them to call individual Republican senators and putting those senators' phone numbers on Twitter. So it is just ratcheted up to a level of rhetoric that is really unprecedented. And so we know that we always think of the Republicans in the state Senate as being 
much more conservative as a caucus than Republicans in the state house. Just generally speaking, it's it's where kind of you're, you're going to get your most conservative um, ideas, uh, representatives, rhetoric. But Colton Moore is really an outlier at this point, specifically because the governor and the speaker and Senator Gooch have made him an outlier. You know, after what we all watched and Tia, what you were involved with on January 6th, when uh, Trump supporters whipped to a frenzy to attack the United States Capitol, when we hear this language from Colton Moore, it is beyond offensive, which is another reason it takes us back to where we started, Greg. Um, It was Governor Kemp who today called him out and said, we are not going to tolerate um, this kind of rhetoric. We're not going to tolerate this kind of uh, behavior. Yeah, you know, and this 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 was a moment. And again, the backdrop of this moment was really unique because it was ostensibly a press conference to give an update on Hurricane Idalia, and he did. And so there was this interesting back and forth um, between updates on the, this, you know, this horrible weather storm, this horrible storm that churned through uh, rural Georgia and the coast, and then back to Colton Moore, back to uh, the 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 reaction to the Trump indictment. It was kind of a ping pong of a press conference that made it even more unique. Okay, we got to take a quick break. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Your host, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are on board. With all the news and the chaos surrounding the Trump indictment, it's going to be hard to keep up. So the AJC is putting all of our coverage into one place with our new Trump indictment newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. It's all one word ajc.com slash indictment newsletter. Okay, so we just talked about the bellicose, the belligerent language at the Georgia Capitol right now that's really raising the temperature. Now we want to talk about why this is not all just theoretical. You know, this brings us to another huge development, a stunning 57-page decision by a federal judge who ruled against Rudolph Giuliani without trial, in a case brought by Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. They were two former Fulton County elections staffers who accused Giuliani of spreading lies that turned their lives upside down. Let's listen to some of Ruby Freeman's testimony. I've lost my name and I've lost my reputation. I've lost my sense of security. All because a group of people starting with number 45 and his ally, Rudy Giuliani, decided to scapegoat me and my daughter, Shay, to push their own lies about how the presidential election was stolen. Now, we don't know how much Rudy Giuliani will end up having to pay. There was a damages phase of the trial that will move forward in the next few months. 
but we know it could be significant. Bill, this was a reminder of the price that this sort of language, it has a real, real toll on people's lives, ruining their lives. I mean, Ruby Freeman and Shamos talked about how they couldn't go outside. They couldn't go to the grocery store. They were worried about their own safety. Yeah, I don't think there's any question that during throughout the January 6th hearings, uh, Ms. Friedman, Ms. Freeman and, and Shea Moss uh, captured the attention of the country with their emotional testimony about what they had gone through. Um, we should point out, of course, that what's interesting about this is this was a summary judgment because Rudolph Giuliani refused to comply with orders to turn over documents that the court demanded to be able to uh, look at, uh, at how to assess moving forward on this uh, trial, evidence that could have been used in the trial. And Judge Howell finally said, you've lost your chance, uh, uh, Mr. Giuliani. I'm issuing this judgment. We'll come back into court. There will be a trial to assess just how much money you're going to have to pay to Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman. But let me just read you one quote from, as you pointed out, a 57-page a uh, 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 ruling by by Judge Howell. She said, Tia, donning a cloak of victimization, which Julie, uh, Giuliani does regularly, may play well on a public stage to certain audiences, but in a court of law, this performance has ser- served only to subvert the normal process of discovery in a straightforward defamation case with the concomitant necessity of repeated court intervention. He ignored it. He just wouldn't turn over discovery. Yeah. And I think also, you know, a couple of weeks ago when Rudy Giuliani's lawyers submitted that briefing where he basically said, "Okay, I'll I'll give them the fact that I defamed them. I'll give them that I did not tell the truth about them, but I don't think it was like I was I should be liable for it. I was doing it as far as my duties as President Trump's attorney. But once he admitted he did not tell the truth about them the outcome isn't surprising. However, the caveat to me is it looks like Rudy Giuliani's broke. You know, we've been reading about how he's struggling to even pay for his own attorneys, which doesn't bode well for, you know, a judge and a jury could award Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss a sizable sum. Um, We've seen some defamation cases um, come back, especially the damages. We, we've heard them talk about the damaging, damages to them personally and professionally. I think they're going to make a compelling case for damages, but it's like, will they ever see a dime from Rudy Giuliani is the question. It's a good, and it's a good question. And Patricia, I mean, what's something that's always struck me about this case in particular, it's one thing, and doesn't excuse it, but it's one thing for public officials, for the likes of Governor Kemp or Secretary of State Brad Ravensburger or former Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, who got all sorts of horrible threats and doesn't excuse it, of course, but they're public officials. It's another thing for two you know, election staffers who are literally serving as the sort of gears of democracy, making sure that we have timely election results uh, making sure our ballots are counted accurately. It's nothing for them to face this sort of public, they're not public figures and they're facing this sort of public backlash from uh, all because of Trump driven lies. Yeah. And we really would not have known how bad it got for these two were it not for the January 6th hearings and them coming forward and publicly telling their story that required them to expose themselves again, but publicly saying just how, 
difficult and really horrific their lives have gotten since then. Um, But also, if you remember back to Gabe Sterling's kind of now famous or infamous press conference in 2020, when he practically begged Donald Trump and his associates, please, please stop what you're doing. Please stop spreading these lies. Someone is going to get hurt and someone is going to get killed. He was talking about having found out that a really low-level staffer at Dominion had been receiving threats, racist um, threats, simply because he worked for the company. And when he had, when he found that out, that's when he went to the microphones because he said, you know, public officials do expect these things. But when it goes to this level, when it personally attacks people who were doing nothing wrong and they're being exposed by people with power and a platform, that's when it starts to get very, very dangerous. And he was right. Yeah, before we hit a break, I want to shift gears and talk about a story that you developed this week about Congressman Andrew Clyde, who owns gun stores in Athens and Warner Robins, and has it made it clear that as a member of Congress, he wants the federal government to relax restrictions on gun ownership and possession. Now he's facing scrutiny from a watchdog group. Yeah, this was an interesting development. The watchdog group points out that Andrew Clyde talks about legislation, advocates legislation, has sponsored, you know, written bills that in theory could affect policy in ways that affect his personal wealth. Um, And I think that's something that has been taken for granted, quite frankly. You know, we knew that he was a gun store owner when he was elected, and we knew that defending the Second Amendment wanting to relax gun restrictions has been a pillar of his time in office already. But what the group is saying is that there are rules that say, you know, if you're sponsoring legislation or advocating for positions in certain ways, that crosses an ethical line. Now, um, we haven't heard directly from Representative Clyde on this. Um, He did respond to a similar similar questions last week from the New York Times who wrote an article saying, you know, there was a committee meeting where he was criticizing this government monitoring program that says if a gun store is found to have sold too many guns that were later charged with crimes, it creates more oversight for that gun seller. And he was criticizing that wanting to change the criteria, said it was a burden on gun sellers. What he didn't say at the time was that his own gun store in Athens was being monitored under that same program. Hmm. So he had a vested interest in wanting to see that program change. And so it raises a lot of questions. He hasn't directly responded to any of it. He did respond to the New York Times, but basically to double down on his criticism of the program, not to address the the conflict uh, concerns that were raised. Um, the ethics, the the Office of Congressional Ethics won't talk about it publicly unless it moves forward with um, kind of the next steps going mm-hmm. to the, the House Ethics Committee. The House Ethics Committee very rarely um, finds wrongdoing among members. So it's unlikely that much will come from this, but I do think it's Um, questions that have been raised, and we at the AJC will definitely um, continue to uh, write about these things. Yeah, I think Tia's uh, 
report is really important because what Clyde is doing is just very, very unusual. This is not standard operating procedure in Congress. Typically, when members of Congress are elected, they, um, I mean, in the way old days, they would even put their money into uh, any investments into kind of a blind trust and have somebody else operate that trust, um, divest themselves of public or any private um, businesses. Uh, doctors are typically required to resign from regular practice. All of that is to avoid conflicts of interest. Um, and Clyde is just so out front about it. I think it makes some people feel like, oh, well, then there must be nothing wrong with this. But he not only owns those two really large gun stores, there is a side co- government contracting business that sells munitions and hardware to the federal government and state government. Um, those those contracts were alive um, after Clyde went into office, all while he is wearing and distributing AR-15 pins to wear in Congress. Um, and as Tia said, really advocating unabashedly um, to loosen gun restrictions and and uh, particularly loosen restrictions on gun stores, um, just like the ones that he owns and operates. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to take your questions, also our favorite segment of the week, who's up and who's down. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Tia Mitchell. I'm also with Bill Nygut and Patricia Murphy. Greg Bluestein had to jet, so it's just going to be the three of us for the rest of the show. Before we get to our final topics, we want to tell you that we think the Morning Jolt newsletter sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics, and you can get it in your inbox every morning, but only if you're a subscriber to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Join the community now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts and get three months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's 90 nine cents for three months of full AJC digital access. You go to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts with an S on the end, and you'll always know what's really going on. All right, let's get to one of our most popular segments. It's the listener mailbag. Now, you can call the Politically Georgia podcast hotline anytime. Leave us a question and we'll play it back right here on the podcast. Answer your question. It's easy. It's fun. You should do it right now. The number is 404-526-AJCP. That's 404-526-2527. All right. We've got a couple of calls lined up. And remember, Bill did right. Bill from Roswell. If you don't leave your name and where you're from, we're going to make it up. But Bill played according to the rules. So, Bill from Roswell, you're up first. 
My question is, with all the people fundraising from the Trump mugshot, can we, the people of Fulton County, claim any royalties here? <laughs> Love to hear your answer. Our bill from Roswell, if only, if only Fulton County government strapped for funds could make it so. But no, unfortunately, uh, no government agency in Fulton County will get any royalties from the mugshot. Donald Trump and his campaign take in all of the money from that uh, uh, ferocious mugshot that he uh, uh, took in the Fulton County jail. And I just want to point out, um, you know, remember back in the 90s and the 2000s when there were like bots on the Internet that combed all the sheriff's office for mugshots, created these mugshot websites, and they charged people to get their mugshots removed. And so just know that people have always made money off of mugshots that were in the public domain Donald Trump may be one of the few to use it for political gain, but it's not unheard of for people to take these government um, release mugshots and make a buck off of them. Bill, the bad news is that if you are a Fulton County taxpayer, you just paid for that mugshot. Oh, that's even better. I hadn't even thought about that, Patricia. Oh, Shane, we got another one. We do. Tia, you did such a great job. You stole my thunder. I'm our, I, I, I've been slaving away at the Politically Georgia hotline. But that was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful job. Throwing to Bill. And thank you, by the way, for enforcing our rule. If you don't leave a name, we give you a name. We hold true to that. Next caller is Julie from Athens. Hi, a big fan of the podcast. Thanks to um, Patricia and Greg and now to Bill. My question is regarding the Hatch Act and Mark Meadows, just why that's not more of an issue with regard to his involvement in the campaign since he was chief of staff and clearly a federal employee. But anyway, if you could just address that, I'd really appreciate it. Thanks so much. I'll start now, even though Julie um, considers me chopped liver, but it's okay. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm I'm a new voice. So, but the Hatch Act and its relationship to Mark Meadows and the Fulton County indictment is something that I've been doing some research about, actually. And it's likely to become perhaps a subtext of his efforts to get the case removed to federal court. For those who aren't familiar, the Hatch Act prevents federal employees from using their government time for campaign purposes. So what is happening is as Mark Meadows argues that all his efforts to support former President Trump's um, questions about the 2020 election, his efforts to overturn the election, he's saying he was doing it in his role as chief of staff. If it's ultimately interpreted that as chief of staff, he was taking part in electioneering or furthering a campaign, that could be a violation of the Hatch Act. Um, Hatch Act violations, usually they come with a slap on the wrist. Um, I think um, 
Who's the guy who was HHS secretary? Didn't he have some? I, I know Sonny Perdue did. Sonny Perdue had a Hatch Act violation that came because as agriculture secretary, he was found to have made some political statements during official um, events. But it usually comes with a slap on the wrist. But it is something that I think is going to continue to be scrutinized because He's walking a fine line by raising this issue that he was acting in in his official capacity. And lastly, we got a question via email. This comes from James. Uh, James asks, I'm trying to get a sense of why the General Assembly can't oust a sitting DA. Can they do so under the Articles of Impeachment? Yeah, so it's a great question. Technically, the General Assembly actually does have the power to impeach um, other officials, including locally elected district attorneys. However, that process requires a three-fifths vote to remove a sitting um, a sitting official. And by today's count, that would require all Republicans and multiple Democrats. And that is simply not going to happen. And so the message from uh, Republican leaders, um, first of all, is that there are just not the votes. But then we've also heard from Governor Kemp and from uh, Speaker Burns that that's just not something that anyone has shown any evidence should happen. All right, Shaney B., sorry I stole some of your thunder, but that wraps up our hotline portion of the podcast. And now for the very popular Who's Up, Who's Down? Bill, we're going to put you on the spotlight. You start. Well, my Who's Down, it's how do I decide between Colton Moore, who the governor used a good portion of a 20-plus minute news conference to wipe the floor with, um, and Rudolph Giuliani, who has just been severely upbraided uh, by a federal judge for refusing to comply with orders to submit uh, discovery evidence. So Colton Moore, he's the local guy, so I think he's my uh, loser. Do we do winners at the same time? I'm new to this game. No, we'll come back to you. Okay, what, what about you, Patricia? My who's down are members of the Georgia General Assembly who have found themselves getting into a time machine that they never wanted to return to, and they're back in 2020 getting literally death threats against them because of something that Donald Trump is saying and doing and putting his allies up to amplifying. Um, it's just a terrible place for them to be, and really no public or private officials should have to go through that. So they are my for sure who's down and they certainly have my condolences for that. And I'll end with my who's down is Harrison Floyd. He was the only one of former President Trump's co-defendants who remained in custody after surrendering. He was granted bond on Tuesday, released on Wednesday. He spent a total of five nights at the Fulton County Jail And that jail is notorious. Just this week, we also learned that a fourth inmate died at the jail in just a month. So it's not a fun place to be. And Harrison Floyd was there for five nights. So he's my who's down. All right, guys, we're going back around this time. Who's up, Bill? All right. Because I'm brand new, 
I'm going to ask for your indulgence. I'm going to break every rule. I'm, I guess we're supposed to be talking about political figures, political news. I want to go in a completely different direction. And maybe this is the only time you'll give me a gimme on this. But because I'm the father of a daughter who uh, is a smart, independent young woman, my winner for this week is the University of Nebraska women's volleyball team, <laughs> which set a world's record for attendance, the largest attendance ever at a women's sporting event. 92,000 people came to see them play in that football stadium. And I've got to say, anytime women get that kind of recognition in sports particularly, just is a totally thrilling thing to me. Patricia, what about you? <laughs> well, first of all, I did not see that coming. I'm going to find out more about who they were playing. <laughs> Go Nebraska. Um, my who's up are State Senator Shelley Eccles and State Senator Bo Hatchett. They came up very, very quickly this week, the day after, it might have even been the day of um, Colton Moore's letter, and said, uh, went through point by point and said why every part of Moore's uh, demand and call to have a special session was not possible, was dishonest, was part of a fundraising scheme. The only way to battle disinformation is with real information. And you have to do it fast and you have to do it aloud and you have to do it repeatedly. And these two state senators um, who are not in the senior ranks really took the lead on that. And so they're for sure my who's up this week. All right. And my who's up is Governor Brian Kemp. He's just had a really strong week as the leader of our state, you know, not just standing up to Trump, but his leadership in response during Hurricane Adalia, um, making sure that he swiftly called a state of emergency and had the EOC up and running. He's been um, in contact with President Biden, and we haven't seen some of the the vitriol um, in that partnership, even though he's been critical of President Biden this week, it looks like those lines of communication have been open and everyone's working for the common good after a natural disaster. So I feel like I've at times I've been confused by Governor Kemp. I've been hard on Governor Kemp. So I want to give him props where it's due. And I definitely think he's had a strong week. Bill? By, by the way, Patricia... By the way, they played the Omaha Mavericks, and they won three nothing. A great victory for women's sports. <laughs> All right. Before we leave, we wanted to let you know about a change in the schedule for this Politically Georgia podcast. We want to make sure you get the latest news when you listen. And so starting on Friday, the 15th of September... We're going to be recording new episodes of Politically Georgia on the morning of the same day the episode will be released. That means you'll be able to listen to fresh squeezed political news every Wednesday and Friday afternoon recorded just a few hours earlier. And of course, you can still choose to listen whenever you want on the podcast platform of your choice. Thanks so much for listening to the Politically Georgia podcast. You can find all links to the stories we talked about today in the episode summary. We release new episodes every Wednesday and Friday or whenever big news breaks. 
We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Oh,